My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. We're so glad you are with us this morning. Start off with a question. Um, who are my history people? Who enjoy history? Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Um, do you know when... I'll ask some rhetorical questions. If you act, I mean, if you know this, you can shout it out. Do you know when the Roman Empire was at its largest? At what point had Rome conquered the most people? At what point was it at the height of its glory? The answer is 117 AD. And if I asked you, who was the emperor? Who was the driving force behind such power, such reach, such influence? Do you know, better question, do you care? <laughs> His name was Trajan, Emperor Trajan. Now fast forward 11, 1200-ish uh, years to the 13th century, the rise of the Mongols, driven by Genghis Khan, where their empire would come to cover 20% the landmass of the world. Would you recognize Genghis Khan if you saw his statue, probably not. When Google engineer and professor of computer science Steve Skin and Charles Walker developed an algorithm a few years ago uh, to unleash upon the internet, they wanted to know who the most important people in human history were. Genghis Khan came in 38th. Caesar Augustus, Roman emperor, came in 30th. Albert Einstein, very important physicist whose discoveries changed the landscape of the 20th century, came in 19th. The influential philosopher Aristotle, and you may have never studied philosophy, you may have never read anything about Aristotle, but a lot of his ideas are built into your assumptions about the world. He came in eighth. And then some random guy, 150 years ago, Abraham Lincoln, number five. And in first place came a poor, homeless Jew who died a criminal's death 2,000 years ago on the cross. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, yeah, sure, you can clap. But my question is why? And honestly, he doesn't even have to come first. They may do this again at some point, and maybe he comes in second or fifth or eighth. But you think about all the powerful people that have lived across history. Kings and queens, emperors, prime ministers and presidents. You think about the amount of wealth and power that many of these people have taken. You think about those who've invented things that have just absolutely changed the course of history. How does this guy break the top 100, let alone the top 50 or top 10? Well... We're opening up to the last two chapters of this biographical account of the life of Jesus. And I believe that as we look at the life of Jesus, these last two chapters answer that question, the why. Why does Jesus rank so highly? Why has this guy become so influential? Again, this poor, homeless guy who honestly had the ethnic background that everyone else despised who died a criminal's death. And I'll just be very upfront with you. I believe it's because what we're about to read is real. 
You could explain it away in a lot of different ways, but and people have attempted, I believe the best explanation for what we see here and for what we're going to look at in the text is that Jesus is who he says he is and that what we're reading is real. And so we're going to turn to John chapter 20. If you have your Bible, if you're new to the Bible, it's about that far. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, last quarter of the scripture. We're going to be in uh, chapter 20. Before I start reading, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would remove distractions from our heart. We ask that you would remove, Lord, any senses of, 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 of lingering guilt. Lord, that you would remove uh, uh, any sense of lingering shame, God, that you would just free us in these moments to encounter you in a new and a fresh kind of way. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and edified Lord, perhaps rebuked if necessary. But God, that we would re receive what it is that you have for us today and that what is unhelpful or false, that it would fade. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John, I gotta get there. All right, here we go. Chapter 20. By the way, Jesus, Gary talked last week, our lead pastor, Jesus has been crucified. And just in the way of background, Jesus came and they were expecting a Messiah who was going to deliver the people from Rome, establish Israel as, take up the sovereign throne. And yet he was crucified. 20 verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was someone whom Jesus had cast out seven demons from. She came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, who we would find out at the end of the chapter is the one writing this, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now she saw an empty tomb, and we're gonna see later, didn't believe, had no sense, she thought, grave's been robbed. Now we know grave robberies are actually a giant problem at the time and not too many decades later a Roman emperor would make it punishable by, by, by killing. It was a capital offense. It was an issue. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. I saw somebody from a church put a meme up not too long ago on Facebook about John being like, eh, I'm just gonna inch it in here, you know, that just so everybody knows for the next thousand or so years that I was faster. <laughs> like, no big, but it's in there. Um, actually, it just points to the amount of detail that's being provided. I got one historian, he explained it this way. He said, the ancient explanation for the swiftness of the beloved disciples is probably the correct one. He was younger than Peter and arrived first. I know some, there's some older people here who run. You could outrun me, okay? N not what he's saying. Because the entire narrative is designed to explain just how and when and to what degree faith in the resurrection of Jesus was achieved. The details of the eyewitness are deemed important. Moving on. Then following him, Simon Peter also came, because he arrived later. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head 
was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. This is a giant nod to the fact that this wasn't grave robbers. They didn't have very much time, what they were doing, they shouldn't have been doing, and so they did not take the time if they were going to rob a grave, particularly if they're going to take a body, is to fold up the cloth nice and night and place it there. Not so much. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, wink, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Why does it say they didn't understand to rise from the dead? That's actually a major theme here because despite the fact that the tomb is empty, we're going to see that not everyone perceives that and thinks resurrection. And yet as we talk about this in the last two chapters today, my first point is this. We're going to talk about Real resurrection, Jesus appearing to real people, and Jesus causing real life. Okay? We're talking about the resurrection being real, him appearing to real people, and him offering real life. And that's my first point, that what we're seeing here, just to start right off the back, that the res- re- resurrection of Jesus is real history. William Lane Craig, philosopher, theologian, he teaches apologetics over on the West Coast. He points out, that there's four kinds of evidences, four things that most New Testament scholars would agree on. Now, not everyone interprets them the same way, especially if they're not Christian, but they would agree that these evidences actually exist. And we see them here and then captured in the rest of the passage. The first was this, that Jesus was buried at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was important that he went into a tomb. He wasn't cast into a ditch somewhere anonymously. It is well attested by multiple sources that Jesus went into this particular tomb. And two, the tomb was empty. Despite political and religious incentives to make it not like that. Rome and the religious leaders were very incentivized to make sure that that tomb did not become empty. The tomb was empty. Three, the followers saw Jesus post-empty tomb. We're going to get to that in a moment, because that's attested to and explained away even by people who aren't Christians. And four, the disciples believed he was risen from the dead despite having every disposition to the contrary. What do I mean by that? The disciples believed Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus came to get them ready to go against Rome, to go against whatever political leaders there were of the day, to establish Israel, to rule from the throne. And even as Jesus went to the cross, they had a trouble shaking that. They didn't know that he was going to rise from the dead. It says right here, even after everything that he, he, he had to say, and even towards in, in the middle of the ministry, they would ask him, when are you going to do this? Like, when, when, when are you going to take the throne? When, when's the whole Israel rising? To th- when's that going to happen? And Jesus shake his head like, you don't get it. When Jesus went out and he was healing people and raising people from the dead, you know, within their kind of framework, it wasn't, oh my goodness, this is a glimpse of eternity. In their kind of framework, it was, wow, when we fight Rome and I get injured, homeboy can heal me. That's going to be awesome. Like a video game where you die and then you refresh and you go again. 
We don't got to worry. It's the kind of framework that many of his followers had going into that crucifixion. But when he died on the cross, in their minds, it was a vindication of the Pharisees. It was a vindication of Rome. He died a cursed death. And I can't imagine how many of them thought to themselves, wow, how did we get it so wrong? But despite all that, we know historically that the disciples believed that they were persecuted, that they were chased down, that they were tortured, and that they died, testifying to the fact that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. And you may do a lot of things for what you know is true, but I doubt you would die for something you know is a lie. Those four things. A.N. Sherwin Wright, a Greek and Roman historian, in one of his books on Roman literature, he talks, he gives New Testament historians a really hard time for not appreciating just how good their resources are, particularly on the resurrection of Jesus. He points out how in Greek and Roman history, things are pieced together from generations and generations later, and we take them as being historically reliable. And yet with the accounts of Jesus, these things are recorded within a generation, bearing eyewitness testimony. He argues that the rate of legendary accumulation, this idea that what we're reading is legend, just didn't have enough time. It would be unbelievable. It happened way too fast. Contend that this is real, that the resurrection of Jesus is real. That he didn't just rise from the dead, but he appeared to real people. He appeared to real people. And what I mean by that is not like real versus imaginary, but, but real, broken, sinful, messed up, baggage-carrying people. That those were the people that grew the church. Now, people have kind of disputed what exactly that meant. And I said before that William William Craig's third point was that people saw Jesus. Well, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, if you're not a Christian, how do you explain that away? Gerd Ludman, he's an atheist uh, uh, New Testament historian. He writes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. How does he explain it? It was a collective hallucination. In seminary, we talked about a PhD dissertation that one, one person put forth the explanation that that the, uh, the 50, 60, 70 people, however much it was, just got a really good uh, a set of shrooms and had a bit too much of a good time. This is PhD level stuff. This is what people actually get their PhDs. It's an explanation, but is it the explanation? If, uh, if I walk into the kitchen, it's just me and my kid at home, and, and the Oreo bag is no longer there, and there's, all the cookies are gone, and, and he says to me, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. The neighbor from across the street walked in, grabbed it, and just left. It's crazy. That, that's an explanation. But we have to constantly ask, is it the explanation? Is it the best explanation? If we remove, and I talked several weeks ago about removing the lenses of kind of naturalism, which is a temptation in our culture that everything has to have a physical cause, and we allow God to be God, and we allow God to do the things that God can do, then what becomes the best explanation? Jesus appeared to real people because this is real. 
It starts with Mary. We're going to talk about three of the real people that he encountered. He encountered an unqualified person. He encountered a skeptical person. And he encountered a a shamed person. First, John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told him. And I don't know where they put him. She still didn't, she still didn't get it. Having said this, and you can just feel the affections how distraught and grieving she would have been. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus, he just had to say one word, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She got it right then and there. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told him what he had said to her. Can I just point out that the very first person who saw the risen Lord was a female ex-demoniac. This does very little for the credibility of one's testimony. In fact, it wouldn't have been acceptable in court. And yet the word is full of God using what the world deems unqualified to do what he needs to do, of God using unusable people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. Constantly throughout the Old Testament, God takes the younger of the brothers just to show them that just because you think older is best, I'm going to use that one. God takes Jacob, the shepherd boy, and conquers Goliath. God takes Moses with a speech impediment and leads the people. And when Jesus shows up, who does he pick for his disciples? He gets fishermen. I did some historical research this week. What was, how was a fisherman viewed in the first century? Historians would tell you that they were uh, crude, brash people, foul language, very, very hard lifestyle. The work they did was very rough, and they became very rough because of it. So much so that James and John are called sons of thunder. It comes out a little bit in the text. Peter's whole, I'm going to do first, think second, ask for forgiveness last mentality that you see come out in Scripture is very much what you would expect with a fisherman. Cicero, the famous Roman statesman, wrote that in his on duties, his treatise on duties, wrote that top five jobs that are the most shameful in existence, one of them was fishermen. It was a position largely looked down upon for many different reasons. And Jesus went to the fishermen and said, I'm gonna use you and you're gonna become fishers of men. God uses the unusable. And the very first person he encounters, who encounters the risen Lord, is an ex-demoniac woman. In your mind, what disqualifies you? 
What sort of baggage or history or issues or struggles do you bring to God and says, there's no way I could do that? I heard a pastor once say, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies who he calls. Listen for the call. Not just the unqualified, but the skeptic. We'll keep reading. He shows himself to a bunch of the disciples. We're not going to read that text. And then Thomas wasn't there. And so fast forwarding, verse 24, it says, But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, which you've probably heard this before, he wasn't in his hands, it was in his wrist, this would tear, that'd be bad. Well, sorry, you weren't expecting that. All right, you can wipe the free minds, but it would have been here. The word hand actually refers to everything from here down. Moving on. A week later, his disciples were indoors again. So Thomas hears this, it's been a week. And Thomas was among them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, glorified body, passing through stuff. All right, that's, that's us letting God be God. And he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, now he wasn't present when Thomas expressed the doubt, when Thomas said, I need to touch the wound. Jesus wasn't there, but he shows up, and what does he say? Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Can I just point out, many of us spend so much time Put it this way, we have scars. We have different scars. My son took a really hard tumble last year. He's got a scar on his forehead. Every time I look at it, I remember, it's a scar. We spend a lot of time hiding our scars. One day we're gonna get new bodies, but Jesus' glorified body kept his scars. Thomas responded to him as he went up and touched. My Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I just point something out. At some point in our life, the great majority of us will wrestle with doubts, will wrestle with struggles, will ask really hard questions. Sometimes that's precipitated by a loss, a life event. Other times we're just wrestling and trying to reconcile something in our minds. But what I see here is someone who knew Jesus and who spent a lot of time with Jesus and who had the testimony of close friends who even that person, that disciple, struggled with doubt. So can I just say, if that's you, you're not alone. God can handle your doubt. God can handle the struggle. But I want to draw the line between is there's a difference between this makes sense and this seems so real, but I'm trying to understand and I'm looking for a reason to not obey. I remember early 20s really diving into scripture and trying to wrap my head around certain things and having other people in my life doing the same thing in college. And if, if God's best for my life involves me spending money, not how my flesh wants to, but how he wants to, then it might be easier if that's just not real. And if God's best for my life involves me using my body in such a way 
that my flesh may not necessarily want, but that he wants because it's his best for my life, then, then maybe doing what I want would be easier if he's not real. You gotta differentiate between the two. I would say as we look through all these things, if you're truly wrestling, you look at something like Cold Case Christianity with Lee Strobel, what makes sense of the most data, I would say absolutely, it's because this is real. And you can make all the excuses you want. It doesn't change it. Jesus showed himself to the unqualified and to the skeptic. And finally, to the ashamed. Chapter 21, verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, this is the Peter, talked about him a few weeks ago, who had denied Jesus three times. Now Jesus in Matthew 10, I believe, he says, if you deny me, I'm gonna deny you before the Father. If you deny me in front of people, when you get up to heaven or wherever you're going next and you get up to them pearly gates, that's not what they had in mind. I'm using our cultural references, not theirs. You get up there, Jesus is going to be like, he's not with me. And so Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Possibly referring to the other disciples. Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. Can you imagine the weight of each of these questions as Jesus asks? He asks it three times for each of the denials. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was grieved because of the weight on his soul. That he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. He would go on at the end of this encounter to say, follow me. I can't imagine the shame that Peter must have felt having lived the life with Jesus that he did, having Jesus tell him what he was, that this was gonna happen, doing it, Jesus dying on the cross, all the doubt mixed with the grief and the betrayal and the shame, and then to meet that person again face to face. And then as if a cherry on top, he comes up to you with everything that you've done to, acting to the contrary and saying, do you love me? What could Peter say? You know, you know. He knew in that moment that he was God. Isn't it true, church, that so many of us are handcuffed by guilt and shame? That so many of us hide the struggles and the issues, things that have dragged us back, that have anchored us down in the worst way possible? You could look at that scripture in chapter 10 of Matthew in which he says, if you deny me, I'm gonna deny you. You could take just that, but that's not how we read scripture. We gotta read it as a whole. And so what do we see when we read it as a whole? We see that if that which deserved rejection by Jesus could overcome, be overcome by his faithfulness, 
if this act of infidelity by Peter could be overcome by Jesus' love, if these acts of betrayal could be overcome by the grace that took him to the cross, my question for you is what in the world could possibly disqualify you? What sort of guilt could push you away? What sort of shame could force you into hiding? The answer is unequivocally nothing. Period. End of story. For those who turn, repent, and go to Jesus. And to this real people, this broken people, this sinful people, this baggage-carrying people, what does Jesus do? He offers real life. That's my third point. That what we see here is that Jesus offers real life. We've mentioned this verse on multiple occasions because this is the purpose of the Gospel of John. This is why all of this was recorded. John gives it to us right here in two verses. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What does that word believe mean? Can we, just, can we just remove some of the cultural baggage that's come from the evangelical church last hundred years, this word believe? Believe does not mean agree that it's true. Believe does not merely mean believe that it's true. You don't get in better shape by merely believing that your personal trainer is right and that you need to exercise. You don't get healthier by merely acknowledging your doctor knows what they're talking about when they say drop smoking or soda or whatever. You don't get to a destination by merely acknowledging, by merely believing, hey, that driver knows how to get there. You don't learn by merely believing that your teacher knows what they're talking about. What does it say? That you may believe that you may have life in his name. That word believe, I've heard many New Testament scholars complain, it should be translated trust or entrust yourself. It's not merely acknowledging a truth but entrusting oneself. And I would pick two words that I think sum it up best. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to believe in Jesus as Lord and God? I would say affectionate surrender. They asked Jesus at one point, what is the greatest command? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with all that you are. God wants your affections. And yet in John 14, 23, it says, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our home with him. James 2, 19, you believe that God is one. Good, even the demons believe and they shudder. Romans 12, 1, what does surrender look like? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This isn't works righteousness. We are saved by, uh, by faith, saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast but when we say we believe, what we're saying is we trust. And you can stand outside the car of your teenager who just got their license and say, I believe you could get me to stop and shop safely, but I ain't getting in. <laughs> That's not trust. 
affectionate surrender. And if you've encountered Jesus either today or in the prior weeks or months, and you've never done that, let me just tell you, he's worth your affections. He is good. He is great. He is glorious. He doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. He is the bread of life that offers satisfaction. He is the hope that doesn't go away. He is worth your affections. As Lord, he is competent, gracious. In Romans 10:9, it says this: if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, a Lord isn't someone that you put in the corner. The Lord is someone who daily you would say, your way, not my way. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it is to become a Christian. And if that's you today, and that's your prayer, then come find us, because we want to talk with you. The resurrection is real history. Jesus really conquered death. Jesus really rose. Jesus appeared to real people, and those real people encountered real life, and that life changed and transformed them, and it didn't just stop with them. It changed and transformed communities, nations, the world, and you and I fall in the trajectory of that movement, and we are a part of it as God, through us, through his people, through his image bearers, continue out into the world and live out that life and that love and that transformation. This is real. So don't treat it like it's not. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of John, for his testimony. God, would you seal, Lord, what we need from this upon our hearts as we leave here today. Lord, I ask that you would help us to love the people around us well. Lord, that we would sense your grace with our brokenness. Lord, we repent of, of the sin in our life and we acknowledge that you are just so much better. We give you thanks for your forgiveness in our life. Draw us unto you that we would be continually wooed by your affections for us, God. That we would know your heart. Help us to surrender to you daily. Power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.